Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm Philip Coggan, The Economist Bartleby columnist, and this is Money Talks on Economist Radio. Coming up on today's show, is Germany heading towards a recession? The German economy is slowing mainly because of cyclical factors. I discuss Speaking Up in the Workplace with Professor Amy Edmondson, author of The Fearless Organization. So you've hired these talented, thoughtful, smart people, and then you're not actually hearing from them. And we remember the legacy of Jack Bogle, the patron saint of the amateur investor. He has saved investors an awful lot of money and perhaps that extended his life in some sort of moralistic way. I think that's very unlikely, but it's a nice thought. First, the latest figures show that Germany's economy grew by just 1.5% last year, the slowest rate since 2013. Fears are growing that it's heading for a recession for the first time since the European debt crisis. Wendelin von Brido, The Economist's Europe business correspondent, is in Berlin. Hello, Wendelin. Hello, Phil. Wendelin, why is the German economy slowing? The German economy is slowing mainly because of cyclical factors. It's things like new regulation on car emission, the water levels of the Rhine. Last year, there was a big drought and that um, prevented the usual amount of traffic on the Rhine River. And then, of course, maybe first and foremost, worries about trade tensions with China, as well as worries about Brexit. But like teenagers as to why they haven't done their homework, when you have a whole series of excuses like this, you start to think there might be something else going wrong. Is it really only one-off factors or do you think they might continue into 2019? No, it's not only one-off factors. I mean, the fundamentals are solid in Germany. There's almost full employment. There's a highly educated, skilled workforce, top-notch engineers, and most of all, a stable political environment, which is very different from what's going on in France or Italy or indeed Britain. But Germany cannot be complacent. And one of the main dangers for the German economy looking ahead is that the Germans might be undermining their own success, undermining the success of Agenda 2010, which was the big package of labor market liberalization, by reversing some of the economic reforms of the last years. And that has already started. And that's a very worrying trend, you know, of politicians starting to reverse the successes of the past. Another thing is that, of course, trade tensions don't seem to be abating anytime soon. And for an economy that's so dependent on experts and as Germany's, that's, that remains a big worry. The same is true for Brexit. That's at the moment not going away. But most of all, Germany is very close to Italy, to France and to Britain. And as long as these three countries remain in political chaos, I think there's much to be worried about for 2019. And they often say when Germany catches a cold, the rest of Europe catches fever. So if Germany does slow, that's not going to be great news for the other countries you mentioned in Europe. 
That's absolutely true. I mean, at the moment, the forecasts are still of positive growth for 2019 for Germany. But of course, if that changes and if, let's say, trade tensions intensify, then that's very bad news for the entire continent indeed. Bendeline, thank you very much. Thank you, Phil. You could read more about Germany's economy in this week's Economist, as well as a briefing on deglobalization. Try subscribing at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next, to create a healthy working environment, the freedom to speak out and express oneself is essential. However, many people, when they see their bosses headed down the wrong track, are cautious for fear of appearing insubordinate or foolish. This often leads to workers keeping stumm for fear of losing their jobs. Amy Edmondson, a professor at Harvard Business School, has written about this in The Fearless Organization. Amy, the subtitle of your book is Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation and Growth. What do you mean by psychological safety in this sense? It means a sense of freedom to speak up at work. And by that, I really mean speaking up primarily about work-relevant content, ideas, questions, concerns, and even mistakes. And you give a couple of excellent examples, the Columbia Space Shuttle and a couple of airline incidents of silence actually proving to be fatal. Yes, I do. And those examples, they break my heart. They really do because it's an example of something so small, you know, a person at work feeling literally unable to speak up with something that they believe, aren't completely sure, but believe might really matter. And they just can't do it. They can't find the voice because of the very powerful force of hierarchy. And within companies, your argument is that a sort of cowed workforce is bad for the long-term health of the company because the executives need to learn from the workers. Perhaps the example is the sort of Toyota lean manufacturing approach where the workers can stop the production line. This is a similar thing applied to offices, services, whatever. It's been my observation and my research that oftentimes when you see really big visible failures in financial services industry in automotive and in other you know, consumer products industries, that it's not out of the blue. Many people knew or had concerns, but couldn't get their voice heard. They felt afraid to speak up to their superiors for one reason or another. And then you get these really consequential business failures that in my view are avoidable. So you've hired these talented, thoughtful, smart people, and then you're not actually hearing from them, which is a waste. One example I particularly liked from the book was about Pixar and the making of Toy Story 2. The ability to speak up and criticize freely, they said, was pretty useful. And there's some ground rules for those discussions I thought were interesting. Could you explain? The Pixar case teaches us that you can and I think must put structures in place. And so here are a few of them. There are ground rules like people must listen carefully. All feedback in the space of these meetings is peer-based. When we walk into this process, which they call the brain trust, we're all peers here. The feedback, the criticism must come from a place of empathy. It's not a command. It's a suggestion. It's an observation. And there's a shared recognition, which they remind themselves of at the beginning of every meeting, that all movies 
as brilliant as they end up by the time of release, they all start out bad, right? If we remind ourselves of that, then it makes this process not as painful as it could be, but as a a sense of, you know, this is the creative process in action. This is how it's supposed to be. And you had the rules that the criticism couldn't be personal. And a lot of us might uh, reflect on this one that you shouldn't take it personally. You should be, as the person being criticized, you should be willing to listen. That's a really important one. It's to remind people, everybody participating needs to recognize that what we're criticizing is the work, not the person. So if you were to sum up with one lesson from the book that you think workers and managers should absorb, what would it be? I think the most important lesson is to wake up every morning and remind yourself that your primary job is to exercise your curiosity muscle. Because around every corner, there's something unexpected. There's something new. There's something potentially important. And we forget to be curious. You know, we think we're supposed to know and have answers. In fact, we're supposed to be curious and have good questions. And that's how we learn together. And that's how we innovate. Great. That's Amy Edmondson of Harvard Business School, author of The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation and Growth. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. And finally, last week, the patron saint of the amateur investor Jack Bogle passed away. He pioneered the retail index fund in the mid-1970s. The idea was simple, a mutual fund that mimicked an index of leading stocks. To discuss his legacy, I'm joined in the studio by John O'Sullivan, the Buttonwood columnist at The Economist. Hello, John. Hello, Philip. So was this a really significant innovation, the index fund? Well, I think so. Paul Volcker, the former Federal Reserve chairman, famously said right in the middle of the financial crisis, around about December 2009, that there were no really beneficial financial innovations the last few decades apart from the ATM. But I think the index fund probably trumps that. If you think about the huge amount of money that's now under management, that basically are index trackers, and the fact that the people who own those pay virtually nothing in costs. In fact, there's one fund now you don't have to pay any cost at all. The amount of money that's probably been saved to the consumer sort of trumps any marginal utility from the ease of using an ATM. And I always think the ATM is a mechanical invention anyway. So I think it's extraordinarily important development. It wasn't his idea, of course, but what he did was actually turn it into reality. And there's always a big complaint about finance that they just don't innovate quickly enough to make things easier and cheaper for consumers. Well, in this case, with Jack Bogle, it did. But initially, a lot of people laughed at the idea, didn't they? Yes, they laughed at it. It was the outright hostility and, and derision is probably what met it. The timing wasn't great. So the Vanguard Index Fund started in 1975 after one of the most worst bear markets in stock market history. So I guess if you're trying to say to people, look, you can invest in the stock market and I won't charge you as much as has been charged up until now, I think a lot of people quite reasonably would have said, yes, but stocks just tanked in the last few years. I don't think I want to own stocks at all. So I think that was one of the the big things that held it back initially. But it did meet a lot of derision. Un-American, I think, was one of the uh, adjectives that were attached to it. There was a lot of hostility from Wall Street. Why do you want to be just average when you can be above average? To which the answer was, of course, that if someone's going to be above average in terms of their returns in the stock market, someone else is going to be below average. So average is pretty good, particularly if you're paying a low cost. And in recent years, it's 
taken off, right? Vanguard, which is a mutually owned company, BlackRock, State Street, these sort of companies, they're now huge in stock market terms. It's very difficult. It's surprisingly difficult, actually, to get an accurate figure on on how big index investing is. If you talk to some people in the the index investment companies themselves, they'll say it's around about 20% of all the market capitalization of all stocks. People who are sort of a bit more hostile towards index investing use a different denominator. They say it's it's around 40% of all funds under management. It's a significant minority. It's not the majority of investing, but it's it's a big chunk of it these days. And it now meets the criticism, not that it's a bad idea, but it's so good an idea that it might overwhelm the market and cause it either to be less efficient or for companies to get away with um, bad management practices because the index funds aren't monitoring them. Do you think that's a fair worry? Well, everything has its drawbacks and it's always, it's always good to worry about things, it's always sensible to worry about things. The evidence that this has been a bad thing is far from overwhelming in this regard. I mean, first of all, the idea that active managers are great stewards of companies and are constantly pushing them to do the right thing is somewhat questionable. You could argue that at least index funds hold the the stocks for fairly long periods. You can make a case and certainly the index funds themselves are very sensitive to that criticism have started to do more in terms of engaging with companies directly. That's something that they're very touchy about. The other criticism about market efficiency, I think, I find it even less convincing. First of all, as I said earlier, that the index funds are still a minority of funds under management. You've still got a lot of people out there trying actively to to beat the index. The question as to whether index investing makes the market more or less efficient seems to turn on whether who is it that's been taken out of the market by the index investors. If it's really smart people who have great insight into what the future of stock prices should be, then you can make an argument that it's making the market less efficient in terms of pricing securities correctly. I think it's far more likely that the kind of money that's been soaked up in index funds is money that you might call dumb money, which is the kind of people that were being outperformed by the good active investors. So if if the constraint that index funds have put on the market is that you've taken some of the money off the table that you could outperform, then it's very likely that the index investing has actually made the market more efficient. So... He died age 89, still virtually in the saddle, right? He was making speeches and writing books up to quite recently. Yes, I, I heard him on a, on a recent podcast where he was seemingly very perfectly lucid. One's tempted to say that, that this is something to do with his great virtue, <laughs> which is that he has saved investors an awful lot of money and perhaps that extended his life in some sort of moralistic way. I think that's very unlikely, but it's a nice thought. John, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Philip Coggan in London. This is The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.